giving honor to God the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, being thankful that he has given us life and breath uh, today to serve him, and also to uh, Pastor Gerald again for all of his kindnesses and allowing me uh, to step in to his steed while he and uh, Pastor Johnny and the elders are away on the elders' Uh, retreat. Thank you, Pastor Josh, for leading us in worship today and your team. Thank you, Beth, uh, for reading, and thank you for all who are gathered here today. It is such a joy to be able to bring the word of life um, here again today and in such a rich passage, and just uh, grateful for um, this opportunity for us to share in this together. You all have been a great blessing to me, and I thank the Lord uh, for all of you. Let's look to the Lord uh, in prayer before we begin in God's word together today. Thank you, Father, for the reminders in this series that we are the family of God, that you have made us your own, and it is a family like no other. Would you, in your kindness, look down upon us to remove the sins away from we, your family? Would you pour out patience and love and goodness upon us? And would you, in mercy, welcome new people into the family today? by being merciful to open the eyes of someone to the gospel for the first time so they might see the glory of Christ in truth. Empower us now to hear by the Spirit and give me your grace to preach by the power of the Spirit of God. May you do so so that you will be glorified all over Oak Park, all over Chicagoland, all over in the world, places where the lemonaders are going to serve and all of our mission partners are serving around the world. God, now make your word clear to us and speak to us, and we give you thanks. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. There is an old and popular adage associated with families that simply says, you can't pick your family. The adage finds appropriate use when speaking of the dysfunction or frustration experienced by a child within her or his family of origin. No more than the child originally could name himself or her child can a child select the family into which the child is born. Therefore, as the adage suggests, the markings and influence of an abusive, negligent, criminal, unaffectionate, or broken family are not the fault of the child or of the child now turned adult. Unfortunately, many wish they could have picked a different family in which to have grown up. Some show this by spending much of their lives as parents trying to provide for their children the very things that were lacking in their own home. Others simply say, I'm never having children. For it's easier to avoid the potential of repeating being the family of the can't-pick-your-family adage than it is to overcome the pains of past family while trying to offer something vastly different. Even if we experienced a good and healthy family growing up, we have been touched by the lives of those whose childhoods were far from fairy tale stories. Sometimes we say, if only we could pick our own families from the beginning. 
because we think to ourselves, we would have picked a perfect family from the beginning. We would have picked the perfect siblings and then the perfect child that had the perfect parents with an upbringing far from the pains that we experienced. But we do not get to pick our families. One might then be terrified to learn that not one person can choose to be in the family of God. As much as the choice of your family of origin is beyond your control, so your choice of being in the family of God is far beyond our control. Yet quite unlike the disappointments, dysfunctions, and dangers to which the family adage points, our complete lack of involvement in becoming members of the family of God is the very thing that places us in the family that everybody wants. Or rather... Because God takes upon himself the total responsibility to place us in his family, we each end up being part of the most glorious and incredible family in the universe to the glory of God and to our complete joy. That is, what we see when we open the word of God toward the lead passage in Ephesians and bring to the close of our series the family on the mission of God or family of God on mission, we are part of a glorious family of God. In the first three verses in Ephesians 1, Paul claims to speak with the authority of God as an apostle that the Lord wills for us to grasp the knowledge of this passage and embraces. He speaks according to the will of God. Paul will address the believers in Ephesians as saints or as holy ones. That is, people who are made holy by virtue of our relationship with Jesus Christ. We are not saints because we are venerated by a religious body or we have been or had verification that we have performed a miracle. That's not what makes someone saints according to Scripture. Paul addresses the ordinary believers at Corinth, Rome, and Philippi as saints. Yet, he also indicates in the first three verses the significance of what he is writing is for those saints who are faithful. It is for those who are showing a pattern of life consistent with the identity of saints in whatever geographical locality one finds oneself, whether that is Ephesus or Rome or Corinth or Philippi or Chicago or Oak Park. The grace and peace that he gives are common enough greetings in the New Testament letters, yet Paul is in fact communicating the Lord's acts in this letter because he writes according to the will of God. It is the Lord through Paul who intends to fill our lives with grace and peace through the words in this letter to Ephesus. Peace, we know, is an idea that Pastor Gerald already covered in the first message in this series. We are the peaceful family of God, granted peace by Christ's sacrifice of his physical body on the cross to bring about an ending of the hostilities between ethnic parties in this united body known as the church. The saints at Ephesus are local expressions of that body. And as saints, 
We here who are believers are also an expression of that body of Christ. We represent Christ's physical body, the body that was crucified for us, and we represent it to the people of the world. It is to us and to all saints that we hear these words of grace and peace from the Apostle Paul today. That grace being that we are an elect and redeemed family made so in and through Christ alone. And Paul is going to say three things about this elect and redeemed family of God. First, we are an elect family. As Paul delineates the spiritual blessings of God the Father that he has given to us and as his own through Christ Jesus in the invisible realms where God dwells, he says, God the Father chose us. This is consistent with what we read in Deuteronomy 7 of the Lord setting his love on Israel so that all of the nation of Israel, out of all the peoples on the earth, alone might become God's own. This too is also consistent with what we read in Romans chapter 9 as Paul reviews the stories of Abraham, Isaac, and Pharaoh to explain God's purpose in election, a purpose that acquits the Lord of wrongdoing in declaring righteous those who have faith in Jesus Christ and not declaring righteous those who keep the law without faith. We are chosen in Christ on the basis of what God the Father would, did, will do, and is doing in the person of the Son of God and the works of salvation accomplished by the Son. We participate in and benefit from all these things because we are in Christ, united together with him. Last year, I became a card-carrying member of the AARP. <laughs> so now my email inbox and my postal mailbox are inundated with more information beneficial to people over 50 than which I could possibly keep up with in a week's time. It seems like the AARP has sold my contact information to every insurance company, every vacation planner, and every health improvement outfit in the whole country. I mean, I just get mail from everywhere. You guys know what I'm talking about. There are, of course, some good benefits that come with being a member in AARP. For example, last month, I went to stay at a hotel. As I was making the reservation, the agent said to me, are you a member of AARP? For the first time, I got to say, why, yes. <laughs> Yes, I am. I am a member of AARP. What does that get me? An 18% discount on top of my rewards program? That's what I get by being in AARP, 18%. Hey, wait, does, does AARP work over at Q's Barbecue on Marion Street? I mean, <laughs> just like benefits come by my uniting with AARP, Things come in the package of Christ for the saints in this family, but they do not come by our signing on for membership. 
No, Paul says we were an elect family before the foundation of the world. So long ago that we had nothing to do with the choosing. We did not seek it or earn it. Neither did we even dream of it. You had to be here before the world began in order to dream up election. Only God qualifies for that role. He also says that we are an elect family so that we should be holy and blameless before God. When we were born into this world, it was not our goal at all to live a life set apart for God and his standards or to be one who would not face any accusation of wrongdoing according to the law of God. Instead, scripture reveals that our entire disposition is bent on not pleasing God. We come into this world driving full throttle against whatever the Lord wants, and we will not hit the brakes until we are too deep into the fires of hell to put the car into reverse. But so that some might escape that eternally destructive path, God in eternity past says, I will do a work in my son Jesus to make them holy and blameless. Christ alone will be holy and blameless in keeping my law and standards. So I will unite my family in him. Paul further says that we are the elect family of God as an act of love. He says at the beginning of verse 5 or at the end of verse 4, depending upon how your translation has done it, in love. I cannot tell you almost how my heart breaks when I hear people say that they cannot believe in a God who saves by election, when election is the first act of love of a holy God. God makes all the plans and actions to make sure we will stand before him blamelessly. God does so before he forms the world so that salvation cannot be on the basis of merit. And then God makes it rest on the preciousness of Christ before him and not on our ability or really our inability to please him. And then God is the one um, who is in Christ pleading with us to drop our rebellion against him and to accept what he has done in his son. He is out there saying, please come and accept what my son has done. If that is not the picture of the most loving parent going all out in love to give a child the best possible chance at a great life, I will have a hard time figuring out what a loving God is. Okay, I know. Today's ideas of love mean to accept everything and everyone and whatever we do fully and include all persons in all things that we identify as good. To do less is to be unloving in the eyes of many. It is to be bigoted or it is to be homophobic. But the you're not being loving rhetoric, one itself is one of election. That is, it is one in which some groups get to exclude those who have a Christian moral standard from being identified as good or kind according to that group's subjective standards. 
Also, that rhetoric, too, does not sound like the inclusive love the standard claims to envision and exemplify. And three, neither does such rhetoric consider that love always seeks the other's highest good. That the highest good there is is God who is holy. And so love must seek for others to be holy in order to enjoy the holy God who is the highest good. We serve an infinitely loving God who in love, Paul says, predestined us for adoption. That is, he brought us into his family on the basis of choosing us in Christ. The predetermined plan of those chosen is that they would become part of God's family. This too is glorious, says Paul, and I see why Paul sounds quite charismatic in his expression, in his passage for multiple times. He says, blessed be this, and praise to the glorious grace of that. For in verse 3, it is clear that God is the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, genealogically speaking. When it comes to kingdom, phylum, class, order, and family, the Father the Son and Spirit are the only ones in those domains as divine persons. Genus and species of divinity give you Father, different from Son, different from Spirit, as persons of the same substance, but that still excludes us. So how in the world do we get to be part of what the divine and eternal being and persons are doing? The Father through the Son, says, although you are not mine, I will declare you are mine by taking you in as my own, although I actually only have one son in my family. In fact, we are not just children in need of him to take us in off the street. We are enemy children, sold into slavery to our own sinful dispositions that he has chosen to take in through his son, Jesus Christ. As J.I. Packer says, quote, adoption is the highest privilege of the gospel. The traitor is forgiven, brought in for supper, and given the family name, unquote. I like that. Yeah, I like that very much. We are adopted to the position as sons so that we get the full access to God that the genus son has, and we get the full inheritance rights that the genus son has as anyone under Roman law would have understood in Paul's day. Adoption is not an afterthought of God, but what God has decreed from all eternity. He chose us so that we might be adopted, so that the grace of God toward us would go on display. It is a grace that comes as a blessing by being in Christ, the beloved one of God, Paul says at the end of the sentence. We are an elect family adopted in by God. Second, we are a redeemed family. Note again in the verses that this is the experience and reality we have as saints in him, in Christ. The terms in him, by him, with him, through him, are littered throughout the writings of Paul and the other epistle authors in the New Testament. The terms speak of our mysterious union. That's what we call it theologically. In 
an invisible and spiritual realm we are tied to, found in, and receive benefits of salvation on the basis of who Jesus Christ is and what he has done. It is mysterious in its invisibility and spirituality alone, not as something mystical or confusing. Mysterious in the term mysterious union does not mean confusing when speaking of this union. It is a work of God alone and not something we conjure. We don't say to God, say God, I understand that you have a great family. Can I come and join your family and reap all the benefits of that family? Instead, God says to us, I just want you to know, in Jesus, you have already been joined to my family and you will reap this family's benefits. By this mysterious union... We have redemption, Paul says. It's a powerful concept that speaks of God purchasing us so that he owns us and we belong to him. The purchase price is the death of Christ, Paul says, in his blood. Because in order to become God's own, our law-breaking must be canceled. God's law says only blood, meaning death, remits sin, Sin is so atrocious to the holy God that it incurs the penalty of death as the only possible satisfying payment. There is no payment of anything greater than what we call the ultimate sacrifice when speaking of first responders and our veterans. The highest payment is what God demands for canceling of sin against us, and it should be our own deaths. So... Being purchased to become his own is accomplished by Christ's death on the cross so that God forgives our sins. The Lord does the purchasing, the death, the forgiving, so it is wholly a work of his grace being poured out on us like he has emptied whole barrels full of grace from heaven down on each one of us. As the redeemed of God, God has let us in on his great plan in Christ, what God is doing through Jesus in all eternity and all the universe. In the end of time, when all in this present world and realm is completed, Paul says, God will tie together all the saints and the new creation and the angels of God and things in the cosmos with God himself into one big, eternal, peaceful, glorious, holy, blameless party in which we will increase in our knowledge of God and our joy in him forever and forever. The experience of this in its fullness, we do not have the capacities to grasp in our finite and corporal beings. It has not entered into our hearts what God has prepared for us, Isaiah 64 tells us. However, I think Pastor Tim Keller has it right when he describes that experience as dancing with God forever in love and joy. <laughs> Third, we are a family of heirs. We are an elect and redeemed family. But we also have an inheritance, Paul says, when he gets down to verse 11. The grace of God in Christ secures an inheritance for us. This adoption as sons comes with the privileges of inheritance. 
The predetermined design that brought adoption also brought an inheritance according to that same decree of God within the eternal planning of the three persons of the one triune God. Paul says counsel in there to describe that. Those who place their hope in Christ often at the risk of rejection and ostracism from their own families and greater society will not find their decisions to have been wrong or in vain or at a loss. Instead, the inheritance makes placing hope in Christ worthwhile in that we receive everything that Christ will receive in the ages to come. We will inherit the fullness of Christ himself, the rest of the New Testament teaches. This magnifies God's grace again, for inheritance is given as a prerogative of the owner and not as a right or demand of the child. Freely, God will give to us all that he gives to Christ, his son, for we are in him. The inheritance is guaranteed for us in the gospel by faith through the working of the Holy Spirit. Now, all this talk of what God has chosen and accomplished and decreed in eternity past and chosen by his eternal plan could leave us wondering if the Christian life is not simply an act of absolute determinism, negating the free will of all persons. However, as Paul indicates here, we do have free will. We have enough of it to hear the truth about the death and resurrection of Christ and his sufficiency for salvation, what Paul calls the good news. We also have sufficient free will to believe, Paul says. That is, to place trust in Christ by our volition. The belief does not make salvation. For Paul has already indicated 10 times that this work is the work that is in him. It is something that is in Christ. It is by Christ, through Christ. Belief simply trust the work of another. Works is something different. Works trust our own ability. But belief trusts what someone else has done. Belief is the saint's response to the gospel. So if you are looking to become part of the family of God, don't worry about all that decree and election and council stuff. Simply believe on Jesus. Believe on him. Trust in Christ's work to secure salvation by dying in our place and rising again from the dead. That that is the only way to salvation, the only way for you to see God. Until now, the passage has focused on two members of the Godhead, the Father and the Son. But our faith, as we know, is Trinitarian, understanding that God is three persons within the one God. The third person, the Holy Spirit, secures our inheritance, says Paul, so that it never can be lost. The Spirit secures our salvation until we possess it in full and final form. The Spirit of God enters the believer's life, taking up residence in each one of us individually and in the family of God as a whole and corporately as the 
deposit, Paul says, or down payment in some translations of God, a deposit on our complete salvation. I can remember from early married life that having cash for deposits often was a key to securing big items that we needed, that you need. That is, generally speaking, you need two months of rent for a security deposit for your first apartment or house rental. A car dealer would prefer some portion of your car purchase to be a down payment from your own accounts rather than the full purchase going through financing. Even if you have a large enough scholarship fund to go to a university almost free, the university still wants you to send a deposit to hold your space in the incoming class. And then on top of that, just when the parents think they have written all the checks they can write, the school says, and we need a housing deposit to hold your place in the dorm. We always have this thing for deposits. The deposits intend to ensure that both parties will keep the contract, even though we would be willing to lose our deposit to get out of a contract offer for a better one in some cases. God, however, in securing our redemption forever, offers himself as the deposit, the down payment on our salvation so that he guarantees salvation will come to us in its full expression. Because we are chosen in Christ and redeemed in Christ, the family of God will inherit everything salvation has to offer no matter what. Our God is not looking for a better purchase, by the way. The Father in eternity past, determined to give the Son to die for the redemption of we who has chosen so that he could adopt us into his beautiful family. And he has given the Holy Spirit to make sure that what was purchased will be his forever and that he will for certain give to his children all the inheritance that he will give to his very own Son. So what does all that mean? It means three things. First, it means that being the family of God is about our holiness and not about optics. The way in which we make decisions about who we will know, love, serve, embrace, follow, celebrate, or put forth to represent us within a body must be made on the basis of our mutual identity as adopted sons of God. The world can play that popularity contest game in which we look for the prettiest, the most handsome, the polished, the accomplished, the financially established, the athletically built, and the intellectually astute as the measure of maturity, growth, success, or worth. But in the family of God, we cannot do that. We recognize that every saint is simply a former rebel to God, now experiencing grace upon grace upon grace upon grace as an adopted child, and we all embrace one another as such. And then when we get that right, we can really go and love our neighbors, and they will want to be part of that kind of family. Second, it means we are free from demanding all expressions of Christianity within the family of God be exactly the same. The essence of who we are as the elect of God is what is the same in God's family. 
But all forms of how we express our faith are not the same. Expressions change on the basis of experiences with earthly family, regional practices, national beliefs, periods of history, cultural folkways and norways, and wisdom toward our witness of the gospel. As any expat or foreign-raised member of Calvary might tell you, Christianity, as we practice it here in the U.S., does not look like Christianity as practiced in other places they have lived and or served. North American Christianity is not the litmus test for whether or not one is a believer or whether or not one is in a church or whether or not one is part of the family of God. Neither is Christianity as expressed in the practice in the Midwest the same as elsewhere, and we cannot hold people from other regions or of different ages or ethnicities or denominations to our expressions that we have in the Midwest, lest we be found not to be members of the family of God according to the standards of others. You and I know this. You and I know this based on our experiences together. For certainly, the way I've experienced the practice of belief here in the Midwest differs from the practice I've experienced growing up in what would be the South to most of you, although it be the North to all those who grew up below the Potomac River. That is, since I arrived here on staff as a, as a pastor, as a pastor, very few of you have had any trouble at all offering me a form of alcoholic beverage with a meal or drinking one in front of me. In fact, you have been so free that I've had to make sure at times that I was not hired onto staff at a Presbyterian church. <laughs> but in Maryland and other places of much of my previous ministry travels, no one would have dared offered Pastor Redmond a drink or even admitted having alcohol in their home if I walked in. In fact, they would have acted like they couldn't even spell the word alcohol or even identify a can of beer. <laughs> alcohol, alcohol, what did you say that was, Pastor Redmond? Alcohol, how do you spell that? But what? But light. What kind of soda is that? I've never heard of that kind of soda be before, but, but here vineyard nectar is in vogue for believers in the Midwest. So should my friends from the East and the South conclude that I am now hanging around a bunch of heathens and hypocrites? <laughs> should they question Christian practices that do not make membership a requirement for communion and allow non-elders to serve the elements, expressions that would differ greatly from their own? Being chosen, redeemed, and sealed with an inheritance frees us from being religious inspector generals. And I say religious because that's all that it is. Inspecting expressions is not Christian, it's just religious. We do not look to see real things when we're inspecting, by the way, like whether or not a believer's practice is shaped by trauma or hardship. Neither do we seek to evaluate whether or not others excel at things like loving, unloving, unlovable people in a way that we cannot love them due to our inability to exchange or to change our expressions of salvation. Third, 
It means we need to make a lower priority of our list of complaints about the family of God and life in general and make a higher priority of praising our Christ. I am reading Ephesians 1, 1 through 14, and I'm not even sure how Paul was able to pen this section. In the Greek text, you can tell that Paul was very excited because verses 3 through 14 are actually one long run-on sentence. It looks like he just got so caught up thinking about how great the grace of God is that he just had to keep on writing. I, I can imagine that Paul started writing, blessed be God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, chose us in him before, holy and blameless, predestined, adopted through Christ to the praise of his glorious grace. He paused, he put the stylus down so he could bow down and raise both hands to God and said, hallelujah. <laughs> Recomposing himself, he then picked the stylus back up and wrote, in him we have redemption. Through his blood, forgiveness, riches of grace, lavished, making known the mystery of his will, predestined, put down the stylus to look to heaven and quoted from the Old Testament, the Lord is good. His mercy is everlasting. He tried to pick up the stylus again, but he just had to get one more in. Worthy. <laughs> and then when he could calm himself down enough to write again, he stuck in at the end of a clause to the praise of his glory. <laughs> He kept on writing and came upon, sealed, Holy Spirit, guarantee of inheritance, guarantee, he looked at it, guarantee, guaranteed inheritance. By this time, all he could do is just be redundant again and had to go back and write something he had already written to the praise of his glory. Because Paul understood that God had just said through him that in eternity past, before anything else came to be, when God was thinking about creating a family that would be saved and not damned, that would be filled with joy and not doomed to perish, he chose me and he chose you. Glory be to God. The Apostle Paul says, when his son went to die for people deserving of death, he purchased you and me. Worthy is the lamb, the Apostle Paul wants us to say. Made me a child of the king. Bless his name, says Paul. Even though we struggle with temptation and sin, we will be made holy. Glory to God, Paul says. And though riches come on top of this, they come freely because God's just that good awesome is our God. So down goes the list of complaints that, by the way, will be there when you're done praising him. But now up comes the praise to the one who made me his own. Glory to the Father who has a wonderful plan like this. Magnify the name of the Son who has invited me to the dance of love and joy. Bless the Spirit of God who is living in me and holding on to me in such a way that I will be God's for all eternity. Hallelujah to that God and glory to that almighty God. Thank you, Lord, for picking us to be in your adopted family when we had no ability to pick to be in this family. 
Praise be to your glorious grace alone. Let us pray. Father, we are so grateful that you have elected and redeemed us and blessed us with an inheritance on top of all that you have done. And even these 14 verses are just a small glimpse to open the way of who you are for us and all that you offer to us and what it will mean to be with you forever and ever and ever. Praise to your glorious grace, not to our efforts, not to our networking, not to all of our schemes, God, not to our intelligence. Praise be to your grace, to your gifts, to your goodness poured out on us in spite of ourselves. May the Father be magnified in us. May the Son be exalted in us. May the Spirit be glorified as we enjoy being the sons of God. And we give you thanks. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.